Last week, I told you that to understand real church, you had to answer three questions. Am I the consummate servant? Am I a Nike runner? Am I the rock my world God believer? And then I said, real church has been, always will be, is right now, you. It's you and your response to those questions. It's the way you wrestle with those questions in your heart and your mind all the time. This week, I'd like to teach you about what was new about the New Testament and how that was really something old. It was really something old because, you see, we knew he was coming. We knew all along he was coming. We all like the new, but the new is always based upon something, always, as is illustrated by this Best Buy commercial. It is the newest, even newer. Uh, Everything else is obsolete. Oh, whoa, wait. Oh, 4D TV? Stupid. You got the wrong TV, silly head. Yes, the new is always based on something. It's always based on the old. There has to be something old for there to be something new. It's just the way it works. And so today I'm going to show you what was old, what was old from ancient times and how that was able to to reveal and to make everything new. Luke chapter 24. Luke opens this part of his story detailing how the, the women went back to the tomb. On Friday, it was a very dark day. It seemed like everybody's world fell apart. And because of the Sabbath, everybody had to wait until the passing of the Sabbath in order to do anything that resembled any kind of work. And so the Sabbath passed and these women went to the tomb to to take care of the final burial preparations for the body of Jesus Christ. But they found that the stone had been rolled away and he wasn't there. When they got back to the 11, the news was just hard for everybody to, to receive. And Peter, not understanding the the words, not being able to take it all in. He went to the tomb himself, and it says in verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, bending over. He saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Peter was wondering what had happened. He couldn't put it together yet. He was not able to figure it out. He couldn't put all the pieces together. Luke continues this this story saying that on that same day, there were two disciples and they they were walking back to a little village called Emmaus. Emmaus is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. So they had a lot of time to just talk and and reflect on what had happened during those days. As they were talking to each other, Jesus came along and was walking with them. And he said, what are you guys talking about? In the loose translation of the Hebrew, of the Greek, what are you guys talking about? And they just looked at him. Their faces were downcast, Luke reports. And they said, don't you know what happened? Don't you know what's been going on in Jerusalem? 
And Jesus kind of egging them on said, what things? What things were happening? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet and he was doing amazing things. Then it says in verse 21, we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had all of our hopes were on him, that he was the one. And it's been three days since all this took place. And, and they went to the tomb early this morning and his body wasn't there. And, and they were just basically saying, none of this makes any sense to us anymore. And then Jesus speaks. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, did not the, the anointed one have to suffer these things and, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In John chapter 5, we read Jesus saying these words, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. In Acts 17, we read, Paul went to their meeting place as he usually did when he came to a town. And for three Sabbaths, for three Sabbaths running, so for a time frame of, of three weeks, he preached to them from the scriptures. He opened up the texts so they understood what they'd been reading all their lives, that the Messiah absolutely had to be put to death and raised from the dead. There were no other options. And that this Jesus I'm introducing you to is that Messiah. In Romans 15, Paul wrote, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There are things that are predictable and there are things that are unpredictable. The things that are unpredictable take us by surprise. We don't know how they happen. We don't know where they come from or sometimes why they even show up. The other day, something unpredictable happened to me. Apparently there had been a meeting of the, the powers that be in our home. I never know when these meetings take place. They're never announced. I don't know who attends these meetings. I just get the minutes of the meetings after the meetings take place. I get the minutes that say the powers that be have decreed that we shall get new beds for the third floor where the, the children have to stay, where the grandchildren have to stay. The crib will go, a new bed will, will appear. And so it's my choice then to either obey the decrees or to suffer the punishment of one who disobeys. So I have learned to obey the decrees. So, so we go to buy this, this bed for the, the, the grandchildren. The, the crib is going away and the grandchildren need a different kind of a bed. So we go up to East Coast Appliance where they now have, have beds along with washers and dryers. And maybe you've seen Rob Nicholson jumping up and down on the bed in the new commercial. Rob Nicholson comes to the midweek service here. So what I'm basically saying to you is if you want a deal on an appliance or a bed, you come midweek to the service and you go up to Rob and you say, Rob, I need a deal on a bed. Also, if you're too afraid to ask for a deal, but you want to scratch and dent in the refrigerator that you really want and hope for and dream about and pray about doesn't have a dent in it, just ask me. I'll go over and I'll kick it. I'll say, Rob, look, 
scratch and dent. Just have to cut it in half. So we're there. So we buy the bed. And we get a great deal on the bed. And then I look to my left, and there's this bank of, of TVs, flat screens, and, 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 and they're, they're discounted beyond belief, just beyond belief. And I'm looking at this one, and I can't believe that it's going for that price. And I'm standing there, and that's when it happened. It was unpredictable. I never dreamed I would be in that situation in my life. All of a sudden, Gail standing next to me said, you should have a new TV. It was unpredictable. It was just one of those moments. I couldn't believe something like that would happen. An angel whispered in her ear. Whatever it was, you should have a new TV. I turned and I said to the sales guy, done. Load it on the truck. Put it in my car now. I didn't want to wait for time for her to change her mind. And so there are things sometimes that happen that are unpredictable out of nowhere. Now I'm watching baseball games. I am like on the field. I'm there. It's wonderful. It was unpredictable. But there are things that are predictable if you just pay attention. The signs are there. It's already been written. And I want to tell you this morning that we knew, we knew that he was coming. It was predicted because it was already written. Let me give you 10 passages from the Old Testament that make the New Testament make sense. 10 Old Testament scriptures that explain that we knew he was coming. If you'd like more information that I'm going to give you here this morning, because I'm going to fly over these 10 pretty quickly, you can get a book called The Signature of God by Grant R. Jeffrey. And he goes into much more detail than I'll be able to do here today. The Signature of God. But let's take number one. This is one you're very familiar with. I'm starting off easy. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. A scripture in Micah chapter 5 that we hear at Christmas time every year. We knew right where he was going to be born. We knew he was coming. It was already indicated. It was already written down. Second, the Messiah would be preceded by a messenger. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. A verse that has been put into the, the theatrical, musical Godspell. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And who plays it in Godspell is the character who's, who's, who's supposed to be John the Baptist because that's what this scripture predicts. It's already written down. We knew he was coming. We knew that someone would come to say that you have to get ready for him. And John the Baptist is shown to us in Matthew chapter 3, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Number three, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a colt. This is a story that we hear on Palm Sunday each year right before Easter. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. What are the chances that that a king would ride into a city on a donkey. What are the chances that, that anything like that could be predicted 400 years before the event itself? 
And yet Jesus, knowing that that needed to be fulfilled as part of the idea that, that we knew he was coming, told his disciples to go and to acquire that animal so that he could ride into Jerusalem on that fateful week of his life. Number four, he would be betrayed by a friend. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, 9, fulfilled in Matthew 26, where we read how Judas betrayed Jesus. Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Even, even an allusion there to what we call the Last Supper, that, that part of the, the, the video clip that you saw here this morning from the Passion of the Christ. He who shared my bread, he betrayed me. And then the fifth, we knew he was coming reality. His hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, how did that end up in a Psalm of David, approximately nine hundred years before the crucifixion, at a time in history when crucifixion wasn't even known yet as a method of execution? There were no crucifixions nine hundred years before Jesus was crucified, and yet David, in a moment of inspiration by the Holy Spirit, writes. They pierced my hands and my feet. And Psalm 22 has even something more to say that we need to look at today. And we'll look at something else in just a few moments. But Psalm 22 is an amazing picture. And it begins with its very first verse. I often say to people, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And most of the time, 99 plus percent of the time, I get the wrong answer. Well, he said that because God turned his back on him at that moment where he became a sin offering for the entire world or he felt alienated and, and disconnected from God in that moment or he was in so much pain and suffering that he just, he just cried out of that gut-level reality of pain in his life. And then I go, no, that's not it. That is absolutely wrong. It's a good guess, but it's wrong. And then usually somebody will, will give up at that point. And I'll say, okay, turn to Psalm 22 and read the first verse. And they turn and they read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ah, oh, I say, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. Then why was he quoting Psalm 22? He was quoting Psalm 22 for a reason. And one of the reasons was that he knew that those that were surrounding him at that time would know that he was quoting Psalm 22. And those who had studied that Psalm would start to, to tick it on down through their mind. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. They would remember that Psalm of David. And suddenly what would emerge is a picture in words of what was happening right before their eyes. You see, God left an entire picture of the crucifixion in Psalm 22 in words. And these are just a few of those words. They pierced my hands and my feet, which we read the fulfillment of in Luke chapter 23. Sixth, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 
and the money would be used to buy a potter's field. Now, if the specificity of Psalm 22 isn't enough, take a look at Zechariah 11:12. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. It gets even better than that. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You have a couple of specifics here. You have 30 pieces of silver, very specific number, very specific of what the coinage was. And then you have the exact location of where that money was thrown. In Matthew 26, 15, we hear the first announcement of the 30 pieces of silver. Listen as I read Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury. We can't put the money back since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Where did Judas throw the money? He threw it into the temple. Where did Zechariah predict he would throw the money? And threw them into the house of the Lord. What did they buy? A potter's field. Why did he throw them into, into the house of the Lord? To the potter. Specific amount of money, specific location, specificity of what they were about to do with the money 400 years approximately before the event occurred. Seventh, he would be spit upon and beaten. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, Matthew 26, 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ. Prophesy to us if you're the one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Who hit you? Eighth, he would be silent before his accusers. From Isaiah 53, and we will read Isaiah 53 almost in its entirety today as we serve communion in just a few moments. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53. Matthew 27, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Pontius Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement 
of the governor. The ninth one is stunning and knocks me back on my heels every time I read it. Someone would gamble for his garments. Again, back to Psalm 22. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. The verse, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing doesn't even make any sense. Where does it come from? 900 years before what is about to take place, it can't make any sense unless you look at it as an inspired moment, the Holy Spirit inspiring David to write something that he doesn't even understand himself why he's writing it. In John 19, you can read, the soldiers took his garments made four parts, that's very significant, made four parts and cast lots for his one-piece robe or tunic. There was a one-piece garment that they would wear that would cover the entire body. It was kind of the, the overshirt, so to speak. Some would call it a robe. It's translated robe, tunic, undergarment. One piece, very valuable. And they didn't want to tear that up. So they were going to keep that. That's what they were going to gamble for. But they made four parts of the rest of his belongings. And it says here, 200 years, 900 years before this time, they divide my garments among them. So they made the four parts and cast lots for my clothing. It's, it's right on the money. It's, it's right there. It's, we knew he was coming. They knew he was coming. They just weren't putting all the pieces together. And 10th, none of his bones would be broken. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Psalm 34, John 19. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Let's get this over with. We've got other things to do. Let's get on with our day. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other, the two thieves that were on either side of Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The reason they would break their legs was that so they wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. They wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore and so their death would come quickly. When they got to Jesus, they didn't break his legs. He was already dead. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies, so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. John was tying the the pieces together. He saw the thread. He was putting it together. He was writing it down so that we would understand that we knew he was coming. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Scholars and theologians tell us that there are 
300 plus of these little pieces, these little pieces of the puzzle, these things that, these scriptures that need to be tied together so that we understand that we knew he was coming. And so the total probability of all the Old Testament passages being fulfilled is somewhere north of one chance in 4.8 trillion times 1 billion times 1 trillion. Those are incalculable odds. And yet Jesus fulfills them all. Let me put it this way. If you could travel across the Milky Way at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to complete your journey. If you were blindfolded then and sent out into the galaxy to find one golden piece of sand, you would face the same odds as the probability of all these scriptures being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's only one person who could accomplish that intergalactic feat, George Lucas. And he's not about to try anytime soon. Maybe there'll be another Star Wars movie about that. Here's another way to look at it. If you spread 100 quintillion silver dollars across the state of Texas, it would not only cover the entire state, they would form a pile of coins two feet deep. Get a view of the state of Texas. 100 quintillion silver dollars. Now cover the entire state in a pile of, of coins two feet deep. Now take one silver dollar, mark it with a big red X, and toss it into the state from an airplane as you fly over. Then have Shrek or somebody real big mix up the whole pile. Just mix it all up, mix it all up, mix it all up. Then blindfold yourself and starting in El Paso at the far western edge of Texas, walk anywhere you want for as long as you want. And then at some point, stop, reach down, and pick up one silver dollar. What are the chances that you will pick up the one with the red X on it? That's the same probability of Jesus fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies, which he did. We knew he was coming. Oftentimes we are criticized as believing in a book that's a, a bunch of fairy tales or it's been changed over the years by so many different writers. And yet everyone who seriously studies the Bible stands amazed at what it says, amazed at the, the record that has stood the test of time. It's the number one best-selling book in the world even to this day. Its stories may be debated. Its stories may stand and challenge us. But the stories always end up saying the same thing. We knew he was coming. Here's a historical footnote. In 52 AD, the pagan historian, pagan historian Thales, wrote a record of what happened in Jerusalem at the time of the death of Jesus, noting that darkness covered the land at the time of his death, his crucifixion. In AD 215, Julius Africanus, a North African Christian leader, mentioned Thales' account of darkness in something he wrote. On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thales, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. 
The Christian writer Tertullian, who lived at the end of the second century over into the third century, wrote that the event of supernatural darkness was recorded in the official Roman government archives. Lucian of Antioch confirmed that the Roman Empire's public archives contained a record about darkness. He writes, look into your annals. There you will find that in the time of Pilate, when Christ suffered, the sun was obscured and the light of the day was interrupted with darkness. Seven centuries before the crucifixion, 700 years before the death of Jesus, Amos predicted a day when the sun would appear to go down at noon. These are the words of God. I'll turn off the sun at noon. In the middle of the day, the earth will go black. And that's exactly the record of the New Testament, that it was at the sixth hour at noon that everything went dark. Here's the interesting thing. Astronomically, it's impossible that a total eclipse of the sun can take place at Passover. It's astronomically impossible. So you cannot say there there was some kind of an eclipse and that was the, the reason that this happened. Because there has to be a full moon before the Passover, just like there has to be a full moon before Easter comes. And when there's a full moon, it's impossible for there to be a total eclipse of the sun. Go ask your favorite astronomer friend about that, and they will tell you the truth. And here's what's even more interesting. Not one of the early critics of Christianity ever claimed that the accounts of the darkness at noon were false. They never said that didn't happen. They never said that there wasn't an empty tomb. All they ever said was, you just can't quite figure this guy, Jesus, out. And we're not really sure who he was. And maybe he wasn't the son of God after all. But they never denied this darkness. And they never denied the empty tomb. They just weren't able to figure out that we knew he was coming. Your faith, my friends, is based upon very accurate historical evidence. Your faith is based upon eyewitness accounts. You do not have to excuse the Bible or apologize for the Bible. It has stood the test of time. There are things you can't predict, but there are things that are very predictable because they were written accurately, because God inspired them to be written so that we would unmistakably recognize and know his son when he came into the world. In the end, it still comes down to faith. It always comes down to faith. Had an argument just the other day with a person who wanted to discount the Bible and discredit the Bible the biblical transmission process and, and you know, he wanted to, to tear down Christians and you know, all of the hypocrisy and you know, the, the usual arguments. And I decided that I, I wouldn't argue with him, but I would offer him the resurrection to think about. And I would go one step further. I went and I purchased a book that had an entire chapter on why the, the resurrection is logically, very logically provable. If you just look at it, 
from an eyewitness standpoint, from a, from a philosophical and logical standpoint. Something happened that was very, very big. And I went back and I found this man and I said, I just want to give you this book. It's got a whole chapter on the resurrection. And uh, he, was, he smiled when I gave it to him. He was surprised that I thought enough about him to give him the book. And he looked me in the eye and he said, well, now I know what I'll be reading this weekend. And he's going to read something that says we knew he was coming. But it all comes down to faith. But always remember, the new always depends upon the old. And when the old is true, the new can't help but be true also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shown us so clearly that we knew that he was coming. And in his coming, we are stunned by the realization of the greatness of your love for us and the meaning and the hope that we find in our lives because of Jesus Christ. Allow us to follow him well. Allow us to know him deeply and personally. Allow us to never stop being amazed at how all these pieces fit together so that we could know who he was, who he is, who he always will be for us and with us. May your will be accomplished, Heavenly Father, in us and in your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Take my 